there is there is much to talk about today. Yeah, so I'm I'm not really a big like when it comes to history, especially the last couple centuries, like the Civil War, World War II, honestly don't interest me that much. Maybe just I feel like they're they're okay. they're so they're so ubiquitous in all the history circles that I'm like, well, I'd rather right. I'd rather play over with medieval or ancient Rome or, or kind of stuff like that. So yeah. Uh, but that said, I actually am really excited to talk about Gettysburg here with you today, like more so than I ever would have would have expected. Yeah, and it's just connected to so much stuff, and I can see doing this episode or, or doing the research for this episode. I can see how people get caught up in it enough to where like. There are people who, more than just being history buffs, they are Civil War history buffs. Right, right. Yeah, you could definitely get into the weeds endlessly on on this stuff. Oh, 100%. My, my first note, and actually I, I just, I somehow just discovered this like five minutes ago before we started the call here. So I knew this film, Gettysburg from 1993, was based off the book Killer Angels. Mm-hmm. But what I just found out five minutes ago was that it's a novel. It's I, I assumed it was a non-fiction book, like a, a historical account of the Battle of Gettysburg. It's actually a historical fiction. Isn't it a series? Or there's a couple of novels? Did the guy write a couple? And there are multiple. It actually looks like his son might have even kind of continued it on after uh, Michael uh, Shara, or Shara uh, died, that his son kind of finished uh, some of the books. But yeah, the main one that the film is based off of is this Killer Angels. But again, I just was shocked to discover its historical fiction. That said, I can't necessarily pinpoint specific inaccuracies in the film historically, and I'm guessing the book is the same way. And it did win the Pulitzer Prize for like fiction or historical fiction. So like, it's highly, highly regarded as a book. I, I was just shocked to realize it was a, a novel. Yeah, so the only inaccuracies, I guess I would say, just to kind of peel the bandaid off here, is it seems like they get the beats right as far as where everyone was, when they were doing, what their, even kind of what their thoughts were. That all seems pretty accurate. Right. The only thing that just seems to me fictionalized, kind of inevitably, is just the particular conversations. And, and, and in, in some ways, it just seems like this was, it was too much what they call made in butler dialogue like the characters are having conversations for our benefit to overly simplify and condense all the thoughts that everybody would have had at this time period about everything and we're going to see it all over the course of three days through these conversations of these men during and between the battles and not that it's bad right that's a normal way to do it but it's that's what felt fictionalized to me like you know, after the night of the first battle, we're going to reminisce about the political situation in the United States at this time, or slavery in general. It's like, well, they probably weren't having these in-depth conversations to the level we see in the film. But, I mean, I, I definitely give it a pass yeah, on all that stuff. But there are also so many instances of, like, little, little tiny details that they get right. Oh, yeah. That are historically accurate. Absolutely. That make the, I mean, stuff that's like... Where even if you were making this movie completely fictional, it's like, oh, okay, this this little moment right here, which I, I have a I have a couple of them outlined that I'll I'll bring up by you know specifically name later on, but it's like, oh, this little detail here. If I were writing a screenplay, I would add this detail in to you know to show you know this emotion on this on for this general, and that actually turns out to be a real historical detail that we know from firsthand accounts of right. people were like this thing actually happened. Yeah, right. 
so yes, uh, seems to be very, very accurate. I, I will mention real quick, I don't think I've mentioned on the podcast before, uh, my friend Casey Miller, I wanted to reach out to him just to kind of touch base because he's actually the one that got me to watch Gettysburg. He's a way bigger war buff, uh, you know, with books and, and film than either of us. <laughs> In fact, he actually has a history degree from West Point <laughs> and uh, has even written like a dissertation on stuff related, actually, well, it's not related to Civil War, but he did a dissertation or theses or whatever on uh the history of the military's use of like blimps zeppelins dirigibles and all all that branch mm. of like the non-plane aerial vehicles he did like a okay i mean i don't know like 50 page thesis on the history of those in use by the u.s military as part of his like schooling as part of you know being in the army and going to west point and all that stuff so he's actually a historian i guess you would say uh, whereas we're kind of more armchair. Anyway, I wanted to reach out and just kind of get his opinion and what he remembered about uh, Gettysburg. His two main notes were just that, one, massive number of actual reenactors. They just kind of recruited, like, non-actors, like people who do reenactments. They got all those guys. Yeah. And then, two, he said the dialogue is essentially verbatim from the book Killer Angels, which he, of course, had read and said was very good. And this is the my summary of this film. That will sound like an insult, and I don't mean it as such. It basically just feels like the most elaborate Civil War reenactment ever, for good or for bad. Like it's it's, it's not even a movie; it's just a reenactment. This movie, it uh, it, it feels a lot like a you know a movie like Run Lola Run or nineteen seventeen, where the movie's taking place in real time. You know, the the Battle of Gettysburg was five days long, and this movie is also roughly five days in like uh, <laughs> for real for real at least yeah at least that's the way it felt because i did have to break it up over multiple days of watching to be able to watch because the <laughs> the regular version i think is is four hours and 14 minutes the director's cut is over four and a half hours which which did you watch i watched the regular okay so, i watched the regular so did one. i i'd be curious because i was actually surprised it was only about a 15 minute difference i kind of expected the director's cut to be like another hour or well, something if you're already making a movie that's over four hours what did they i wonder i, I wonder what they even had that they could cut <laughs> right right because because of that so you look at kind of cutting to its rotten tomatoes score so when you see it's a 77 slash 89 i think some of that is because of as good as it is as a reenactment of the battle of gettysburg and very accurate to both the events and who these men were you could argue, and I probably would lean this way, it doesn't really work as a narrative film because the structure, but also that wasn't even their goal. Their goal wasn't to make a narrative film. It's almost like their goal was to make a right. reenactment. So they achieved that, but it doesn't work as a narrative. And this this movie, fall, well, I don't want to say falls into the trap, uh, but it it makes a creative choice, um, the same creative choice made in movies like Tora 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 or A Bridge Too Far, where... They do not condense anybody. Like, they don't take multiple characters, condense them into one. Right. Every single historical figure is their own character, which means you don't really get a ton of character development for, like, you know, a dozen or more historical figures that you see throughout the film. But the trade-off there is that then you get basically 100% historical accuracy. Right. Versus other historical movies that will... That will, you know, for the sake of the narrative, condense, you know, three or four guys down into one guy 
and now you make the narrative a little tighter, the story moves a little better, but you give up some historical accuracy points going that way. Right. So as far as accuracy, this might be one of the most historically accurate films we've ever discussed. Is that probably fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and actually this too, uh, I brought up Tora, 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 that it also reminded me of that because in when they were making Tora, 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 they didn't want it to be just a, uh, oh, what's the, like a propaganda film for Americans. Mm. So they had a, they had, it was like an American crew and a Japanese crew. And so it was, it was trying to be a lot more objective. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And tell both, both sides of the story. And that's exactly what we see in this movie, too, which I think is it might be another reason why it doesn't have as high of a Rotten Tomato score is because there are some people, uh, I think Siskel's actually one of them, who thought that it's like Southern propaganda. Oh. Like, oh, you're just glorifying the South too much. But it, I, mean, I, I don't have that viewpoint. I think it's more of just trying to include both sides of the conflict, both sides of the story. No, right. I, I don't think it's trying to say... The South may have been right in certain ways. I saying it's just showing you what these men believe and what they were fighting for, and that's true. Exactly, a hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's a humanizing. It's not. It's it doesn't endorse anything, any Southern belief or any belief really at all. It's just gives a viewpoint from these generals of this is what we're fighting for in the North. This is what we're fighting for in the South. This is kind of what our overall objective is in this in this war man if anything i would almost even argue the other way in the sense that it seemed to highlight i feel and i don't know to what extent i guess i mean i was i wasn't there but like the idea that the north that the individual soldier on the ground wanted to go into battle to fight to free the slaves to me, that felt right. yeah, but that's like, I kind of felt disingenuous. It's like, is that, is that actually what they felt at the time? I know some of them would have, but I can't imagine you can muster in the 1800s oh. get a whole northern army on board with the idea of free the slaves. I mean, I, I'm sure it was for for some, but on the other hand, we just watched Gangs of New York, where there were a lot of yeah. people who were protesting and rioting, saying, exactly. "I don't want to fight a war for the slaves." Right, and I guess there's selection bias that the people who actually did sign up were the people who felt that sure. way. But I, I, I guess I always saw it as more of a preserve, preserve the Union was almost more important to the soldier on the ground, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Well, and actually that, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about no, it in a right, minute, but right. that, that was a, there was an, an actual shift in sentiment and not just by accident, like it was, an, it was on purpose to frame the war from a preserve the Union to a defeating the institution of slavery right like right. that was at the beginning of the war it wasn't that way right and yeah we'll get to that the last note i will make then on the film before we get into the nitty-gritty of the battle and everything about the war here is shout out to jeff daniels i i think he is hands down the mvp and heart of this whole movie like jeff daniels just kind of blows me away and i don't think i've ever seen him do anything on par with what he does uh in this film i, I thought he was just spectacular and yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there it was good across the board. I thought, but he was unreal. His performance is great. If there, there were no Oscar nominations for this movie, and I'm confused by that. How does it not get score? I don't know. Score and cinematography. Like I'm actually kind of confused. Score or cinematography. I thought, especially and like my favorite scene in the movie is right at the beginning of uh, Pickett's Charge, where they have those huge sweeping crane shots of all the real. Civil War era cannons that they had, and they're just it's just volley after volley, and you see these massive artillery formations 
with um, in these huge wide shots all shooting at once how does that not get some sort of cinematography award like it's such an awesome scene and yeah and jeff daniels his performance how did he not get a at least a supporting actor yeah I, oscar nomination i almost wonder if there's some weird thing with it being you know so long and actually and i'm reading right here online right now that it was originally they originally thought it was they were going to release it as a miniseries on tv and then decided actually no let's give it a theatrical release so i wonder if is there some weird technicality that made it ineligible at the time? And and I know, obviously, this is 30 years ago. I don't really see anything saying it was ineligible. But just it just seems like, again, th- it's bizarre that this didn't get something in the technical categories, even if it didn't get the acting stuff. Yeah, well, and, you know, we've talked about, because uh, this is the same year that Val Kilmer also did not get a Best Supporting oh. <laughs> Actor nomination for Tombstone. So I don't maybe the maybe everyone at the Oscars was high in 1993 and they just for some reason were were overlooking these uh <laughs> these performances. And 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 there is stuff to, and again this is just uh you know off the cuff here but th- there are rules like there's deadlines and stuff you actually have to like apply and submit. There's this I can't remember the film but there was instances just within the last 10 years of like oh such and such movie isn't going to be up for score this year because they didn't submit in time to be eligible for score. Hmm. But it, so there's weird, all kinds of things like that. So it's it's also possible they just didn't even think they were one of those. They didn't even think about it, and they maybe it's possible they literally didn't even submit to be eligible for awards. Which I know sounds absolutely insane, but if they weren't even initially thinking they were going to release it theatrically, that's maybe not crazy. Any, but that's that's just a guess. Uh, also, just a little uh, Oscar history tidbit. This is the year that Tommy Lee Jones somehow. One for the fugitive over Ray Fiennes in Schindler's List, which I think is absolutely crazy. <laughs> I mean, it, granted, it's solid, but that's more of a lifetime achievement, Oscar. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say no, no nomination for Jeff Daniels or Val Kilmer. Aside the fact that Ray Fiennes didn't win for Schindler's List is uh, criminal, I think. But <laughs> yes. anyways, someone needs to be incarcerated. <laughs> 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 okay, so. We've talked about the beginnings of the war uh, when we talked about Santa Fe Trail and the general. We've gotten into the, the opening battles and we talked about Fort Sumter and all, all that kind of stuff. So, Logan, why don't you bridge the gap to bring us from, because again, the war started in, uh, what was it, April 1861 with Sumter. Right. And uh, this is over two years later in July of 1863. So... Uh, help us to kind of bridge that gap, or at least from the general, because the general was uh, 1862. Right. So we talked about the first year of the war in the general. Um, so this is the second year of the war. So in spring of um, 1862, March specifically, General McClellan uh, was a Union general tasked with trying to capture Richmond. Um, so he was the one who was in charge of this army, the Potomac, which is going to try and capture Richmond. The reason that there's the Army of the Potomac and it's not just the Union Army is because it was also out west fighting at this time under uh, General Sherman and Ulysses S. Grant. They were pushing south along the Mississippi River to try and kind of cut the Confederacy in half. But that's kind of outside of the of the scope of what we're talking about today. But t- that ties in with the general and all that stuff though, right? Like when he had just taken Tennessee and was like, it was along the Mississippi, like that was all that stuff, right? Yeah. 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 So that's that campaign out okay. further out West. Right. Almost like it's two separate conflicts. Yeah. 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 So 
Uh, McClellan makes his landing in Yorktown, Virginia. Um, He makes it almost all the way to Richmond, but he's kind of slow and hesitant to be very aggressive. So he ended up being pushed back from Richmond by Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, the two probably most famous Confederate generals. Even though they had a smaller force, they were able to push General McClellan back. And just to, this is a little side note, I had March 1862 is also the first battle between ironclad battleships at the Battle of Hampton Roads. Oh, huh. The USS Monitor and the CSS Virginia, they were the first ironclad battleships from each side, and they had this battle. It, it wasn't very consequential. They kind of just like, they, they were, it was super slow to reload, and they were just kind of like dinking cannonballs off of each other for a little while <laughs> until uh, one of them like ran aground or something. But yeah, it wasn't like a, a hugely influential battle strategically, but it's just interesting that this is the first time that we have ships covered in iron shooting at each other. Right, huh. Um, so also in uh, the spring of 1862, in April, there was a uh, Union Navy took control of New Orleans, um, and they set up a, uh, they had set up a naval blockade of the Confederate States, which they actually talk about in the movie uh, with the British guy. Yes, yes. He had to go all the way around, yeah. Yeah, he, so he actually, he says that he landed in Texas. He actually landed in Mexico and had to go over land into Texas and hmm. then travel all the way up. Because that British guy, who I'll, I'll talk about it in just a minute, but that is an actual, that Colonel Fremantle, he is an actual historical figure. Okay, yeah, yeah. So at this time, in the spring of 1862, there was the possibility of European intervention on the side of the Confederates. Because the Europeans really wanted cotton. Most of their cotton came from the cotton fields in the Confederate states. And so with the war going on, you know, they're all mobilized for the war effort. That cotton is now not making it to Europe. So Europe is kind of maybe thinking about getting involved. And this is actually one of the things that made Abraham Lincoln want to make the Civil War about slavery and not just about keeping the Union together. So the British would basically feel almost guilty for helping the South if it's about slavery. Exactly. Exactly. He was hesitant to do so because he didn't want to didn't want to make it about slavery because he thought that that would make it more divisive. Like, oh, everyone can get behind just keeping this country together. But if I make it about slavery... It's going to be like, that's just another political divide to throw in. But the prospect of the Europeans getting involved made him kind of abandon that mentality and say, you know what, we are going to make this about slavery. I'm going to make it a moral fight. Now the Europeans are not going to want to get involved because they don't want to be seen as like supporters of slavery because they had like they had abolished slavery previously. Right. The British specifically. And so that is actually why we have this whole like flirting with getting involved. That's why there were European observers in this conflict. The one that we see in the movie, Colonel Fremantle, he was not an official envoy. He was just kind of a tourist. He was taking a leave of absence from the British Army and just kind of wanted to, he just wanted to see what was going on in the Civil War, specifically in the South. And so he takes his ship, lands in Mexico makes his way across, you know, Texas and Arkansas, through Tennessee up to Virginia. And the reason that he's able to, like, travel that far and, like, get audiences with all these generals and stuff 
even though he's not an official envoy, is because everyone just kind of assumed that he was because he would wear this British uniform. And there were other official envoys from other European countries there. And so they just assumed he was, and he just never said, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not official. I'm, you know, I'm just a tour. He just never corrected him. And just, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, you're inviting me to see General Longstreet? Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll go along. So he, he was a real person. Um, he was actually in Gettysburg. Uh, but he was in the movie. I guess they, from, from the perspective of the Confederates, they say, oh, he's this actual, uh, he's like a, an official envoy from the Queen. And, and but yeah, it, he never actually says it himself in the movie, which is another like little historical mm. note. But to the audience, it, it does make it seem like he's an official representative of, you know, Her Majesty's government. Interesting. Queen Victoria. Uh, but he wasn't. He was just basically a tourist. <laughs> All right. So uh, after after uh, Lincoln ends up dissuading the Europeans to join in, this is uh, one of the reasons why Lee wanted to kind of put the pressure on the North. Um, so he ends up invading the North, crossing the Potomac into Maryland. And his initial plan was not necessarily to like militarily defeat the North and, you know, capture Washington and basically like conquering the North with his army. He just wanted to kind of show their weakness, put enough pressure on them so that they would come to the table for a political like diplomatic solution. But unfortunately for him, his plans were discovered by the Union before he was able to surprise them uh, with any kind of in any battle. So they actually moved out to fight him, and that was um, at the Battle of Antietam, which is a very famous Civil War battle that took place in September of 1862. Uh, And to this day, that's actually the single bloodiest day in American history. That's right. Over 3,600 Americans were killed on, you know, from from both sides, uh, because they're all Americans, with over 23,000 casualties in just one, it was a one-day battle. 23,000 killed or wounded or missing and thirty-six over 3,600 confirmed dead. So Gettysburg was more, but over three days, versus this was one day? Correct, okay. yeah. So okay. Antietam was, was one day, right. Also in September of 1862, on the 22nd, uh, is when Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, making all slaves free on 1 January of 1863. Okay. And that galvanized support in the North, basically gave... Uh, a boost in morale like oh okay now it's not it's not just like an academic thing or like a well it's probably going to happen it is in writing official if the north defeats the south slavery goes away also in the fall of 1862 there was a separate conflict where the confederates tried to push north into into kentucky uh, but they were repelled as well as there was a this kind of growing oh what's the word it was happening more frequently that Native American tribes were starting to join on one side or the other out in the Indian territories, like in Oklahoma, mm. southern Kansas area. Basically, Indian territory or Indian tribes were joining with one side or the other to try and get concessions. Hey, if you win, we want we want this. You know, we want this land. We want these rights. Whatever. Um, similar to what we saw in the Revolution, where. These Native American tribes are basically being used as tools by both sides just to try and bolster their manpower, and they're kind of promising them whatever they want because, you know, as we'll see even more going forward in this series, 
the government can always just go back on its promises. Huh. Yeah. Um, so then in uh, December of 1862, uh, there's a new general in charge of the Army of the Potomac, General Burnside. He pushes south toward Richmond, but is defeated at the Battle of Fredericksburg, which they talk about in the, in the movie, which was a brutal fight. So Burnside is in command of the Army of the Potomac. On the other, on the Confederate side is Lee, uh, Robert E. Lee, and Stonewall Jackson again. They have, similar to Gettysburg, they had this kind of rock wall formation that they were all lined up on, and it was basically a reverse version of Pickett's charge, where it's just wave after wave of Union soldiers are coming and just smashing up against them. Hmm. Reportedly, there was a uh, Confederate soldier who, like, hops over the wall to, like, is basically kind of overcome with, you know, what's going on around him and hops over the wall and starts, like, giving aid to these Union soldiers that are falling on the other side of the wall and the Unions, like, do a little ceasefire for a little while because of that. But, yeah, it's this, like, super intense, bloody fight where they defeat the Union army and they're, they're again, pushed back. So General Burnside is fired and uh, General Hooker is put in command of the Army of the Potomac. He is defeated by Lee and Jackson at Chancellorsville in May of 1863. And that's actually when Stonewall Jackson is accidentally killed. So after the battle, the Confederates were again victorious at Chancellorsville. And after the battle, Stonewall Jackson was out riding around doing his own personal recon by himself, which sounds kind of reckless and crazy, but I guess it was a it was a common practice for um, generals to do this at this time. And we actually see in the movie General Lee tell his aide or whoever, you know, saddle up my horse. I want to go do, like, I want to ride around and, and do my own reconnaissance. And so it was, it was a, a common thing for them to do. But as Jackson was coming back into friendly lines, the soldiers there were nervous and startled and didn't know who he was and accidentally shot him. And uh, he, ended up, he ended up dying a couple days later. Man, how do you feel to be the guy who shot your own general? Well, yeah, and not just any general. Stonewall Jackson, like, right. up there on par with Robert E. Lee, like, one of the best generals in the Confederate Army, and he's just accidentally shot by some private watching it on a picket line, coming back into his own lines. Wow. Which, like, maybe if they have Stonewall Jackson, maybe Gettysburg goes differently. Because it... Lee was by that was kind of the first major battle where Lee is by himself where he doesn't have Jackson. So maybe if Jackson was there, he I mean, it's you know, who knows, right? But maybe he's able to talk Lee out of some of the tactical errors that he makes over the course of that battle, right? So, you know, thanks, unnamed private for (laughs) uh, (laughs) for accidentally shooting Stonewall Jackson. So, so that was May, okay, yeah, right. So that was May in the West. Uh, with Grant and Sherman, they're pushing down the Mississippi. They besiege Vicksburg in May of 1863. They end up capturing Vicksburg, and that's just after the Battle of Gettysburg. So we will come back to them probably next episode. We'll be talking more about Grant and Sherman because the rest of their major involvement in the war comes after Gettysburg and okay. the events that we're talking about today. A not a necessarily a civil war battle or anything, but West Virginia breaks away from Virginia and becomes its own state in June of 1863. So that was right before the Gettys, the Battle of Gettysburg. Oh, that's later than I thought. Okay, yeah, huh? And then, well, and so that's actually 
something that is, I don't know if this is actually an inaccuracy because technically it's accurate. I just don't know if it's accurate to what happened in real life. So the uh, American flags that you see flying on the Union side in Gettysburg have 35 stars. And that would have been like just a couple weeks after West Virginia became a state and West Virginia is so the 35th they, state. They probably wouldn't have had time to get that extra star on there. Right. So if they were flying a correct flag, yes, it would have been the one with 35 stars. I just don't know if they actually had any 35 star flags at Gettysburg. And I, I actually don't know. I don't know if that's an inaccuracy for the movie or not, but that's just a, a little observation. That I, I, I could see that. And again, this is just, I guess then too, you might be like, you you have, all right, guys, take all your flags and sew a star on them. Like, true. <laughs> yeah, that's good point. Good point. Uh, also in June of 1863 is when General Meade is placed in command um, of the army. So Which he was brand new to the- that he was new to the command. Right. Yeah, yeah. He's brand new to command in June of 1863 when uh, he meets Robert E. Lee and the Confederate army at Gettysburg. So now I'm up to- to Gettysburg. Okay, yeah. So before you give us the the breakdown of Gettysburg here, I'm gonna give I'm gonna attempt to do my simplified version that you can then correct and expand upon. <laughs> so okay. Now again, I have it. I know I know it's kind of I'm calling it three days, but I get that things bleed over before and after and all that. But okay, so essentially simplified version. Day one, both sides kind of arrive upon the scene and weren't necessarily expecting to encounter each other so soon. And we see Buford make the decision, oh crap, if we don't try to stall them out here, then they're going to get the best ground. So I'm going to kind of put them, uh, put up a fight as they're trying to file in. Uh, and ultimately he does kind of delay them, but the South wins and drives the North back to the Gettysburg where they take up a better, uh, another fortified hill position, that's day one. Day two, the South attempts to flank them from both sides to try to basically break up this uh, defensive position they have set up. But ultimately, the North does repel their attempts to get at their flanks. Day three, with the flanks reinforced, Lee says, screw it, let's just punch them right up the center where they're probably not expecting us, and that's picket charge. And the North again repels them and... That's battle essentially over. Is that close-ish? That's a that's a pretty good uh, that's a pretty good summary actually. Yeah. Okay, okay. Give us the give us a little more a little more elaborate detail because why is it why is it considered? I think you said five days, but then even though the book Killer Angels on the front says the four day conflict. So where am I kind of uh, off on these uh, days? Well, I, I say I say five because I was I guess the battle itself is only four days, but then there was on July fourth the Confederate army was still there because they maintained defensive positions. Expecting an attack that didn't come. Right, right. Right. But then when none came, then they ended up retreating and marching back to Virginia on the 5th. Okay. So that's that's why I said five days. So day four, there's actually no fighting, but it's, the battle hasn't been conceded yet. Correct. Okay, yeah. okay. So it it was a, a kind of an accidental confrontation between the a Confederate brigade and Buford's cavalry. And because of that confrontation there that that battle that little battle uh kind of the battle before the battle uh lee thought that the that there was more army there than there actually was and the reason that he didn't know otherwise is because his cavalry under the command of jeb stewart was too busy doing like raids and 
directly raiding the Union Army rather than providing intel and doing their cavalry screening like they would have normally done. And so that whole thing in the movie where, like, Jeb Stewart's MIA for, like, a week, that's right. real. Right. He was just, he was kind of just gone. And so they were, they were blind. So that's why Lee thought that there was a bigger force there than there actually was. And Buford realizes, oh, this is, like, the whole army, so I gotta, like, try and hold out. Uh, but then they ended up getting more and more reinforcements. And you, you're correct. They kind of held out as long as they could. Uh, their lines collapse and they have to fall back through the town, fighting in the streets, trying not to get left behind, trying not to get, you know, cut off from the rest of their reinforcements that they knew were coming. And they end up falling kind of to the south and setting up on the, that high ground in the fishhook shape that we see on that map in the movie. But this this was Buford's call without any orders from up above him and it was the right call? Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah. and he's played by Sam Elliott in the film. Right, he's played by Sam Elliott in the film, and I actually did a little bit of a, not a super deep dive, but I did look into Buford. So um, John Buford was born in Kentucky in 1826, so he is actually, even though he's in the Union Army, he is actually a Southerner by birth. Mm. He was raised in Illinois from age eight, and his father, and okay, so we're going to go into a bunch of stuff here, just it is absolutely insane, all of the historical connections, like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon that you can play with John Buford here. Oh, huh. So his father was a Democratic politician in Illinois and was a political opponent of Abraham Lincoln when he was a politician coming up in Illinois. Oh, wow. Okay. His grandfather was in the Continental Cavalry and fought under Henry Lee who's the father of Robert E. Lee. Right. So Robert E. Lee and John Buford's father. Or or grandpa, right, fought together in the Revolutionary War. His uncle, Colonel Abraham Buford, was in the command of the, uh, not Union, in command of the Continental Forces at the Waxhaw Massacre. Remember where we talked about... From the Patriot? uh, From the Patriot, uh, Tarleton? Tarleton's Quarter, where he massacred all those guys? yeah. The guy who was in charge of the Continental Army or the Continental Unit there that got massacred, that yeah. was the uncle of John Buford. Huh. That's funny. And then he also has a half-brother, Napoleon Bonaparte Buford, who was also a general in the Union Army. And he had a cousin, Abraham Buford, who was a cavalry general for the Confederacy. So he has like all these connections. But I just thought that that was interesting. We talked about that massacre and yeah. the guy who was in charge of the Continentals. You know, years later, his nephew is this John Buford, who is the cavalry guy at Gettysburg. Hmm, yep, small small world. He went to West Point, just like, you know, all you almost guys. all of these yeah. other generals did. He graduated in 1848. Um, other notable guys that attended at the same time, uh, McClellan, who was formerly in command of the Army of the Potomac. Stonewall Jackson was there at the same time as him. Pickett was there at the same time as him. General Burnside, who was also a Army of the Potomac commanding general prior to uh, Meade. He was attended West Point at the same time, as well as A.P. Hill and Heath, who were both Confederate generals that we hear mentioned by name in the movie. Uh, When the Civil War broke out, he was kind of torn between the North and South. He was born in Kentucky, and so he was a Southerner by birth. He had a slave-owning father, and both he and his wife had relatives that ended up fighting for the Confederacy. So he had strong family ties to the South. However, his Northern education and his love for serving in the Army eventually won out, 
and he decided to stay with the Union. He fought numerous battles throughout the beginning of the Civil War, um, including Bull Run and Antietam, uh, and of course Gettysburg, and he was promoted to uh, Major General. When we see in the movie, he's a one-star, he's a Brigadier General, but he was promoted to Major General shortly before his death from typhoid in December of 1863. So he died... Oh, wow, this same year. Like six months after the this movie is, is ends, yeah. Huh. And to highlight some of what you're saying about like all these guys going to West Point and all kind of knowing each other, like the film does a good job of highlighting how torn they were on both both sides because these were these were their brothers in arms that they had fought with, you know, in the Mexican American War or you know gone to college with. Like they were they were like not just like acquaintances, good, good friends and on opposite sides. Yeah. It's especially well illustrated with um Amistad, the Confederate general. Yes. And then is it Colonel Hancock? Where they're like, they both, it shows them both throughout the whole movie, like just talking each other up. Talking about, yeah. And talking about how much they miss the other guy and how much they just wish that they didn't have to fight each other and, and, you know, how much that they respect the other guy. And Amistad gives that package that it it contained his personal Bible to be delivered to Hancock's wife if he were to be killed. Right. Which played out that way. Yep. It ends up happening. Yeah. And when... Is it? Ar- I want. I keep saying Amistad, but I think it's Ar- is it Armistead. He's the one they call Low, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So when he's killed, he's not like he's not worried about himself dying at all. He's just sad that both because both he and Hancock were both shot at Gettysburg. Hancock ends up surviving. Oh, okay. Low ends up dying. Right. But he's. It's kind of a like a was it a Jefferson Adams? Oh, thing. right. Yeah. Where they're like they, he thinks they're both about to die, and he's like, he's like, I can't believe like both of us are dying. Like this is the worst thing, right? And again, they're so close. They're they're almost they're, they're almost even debating like mid, mid battle, like because again, it, it almost feels like a sporting event where it's like, all right, let's go, and here's our plan for the day, and then okay, well, that's all right, all right, it's halftime. Everybody go back. We'll sleep it off tonight. But yeah, they're, they're almost like debating. Oh, hey, maybe I should go visit him at their camp tonight. Like almost like that would be cool. I could just go over there, say hello, and then come back and then we'll fight the next day. Like it's almost that kind of right. vibe. Like they, they don't do that, yeah. but they they sound like that's a possibility. Right. Yeah. And like they probably wanted to cuz like they hadn't seen each other in years. I mean, right. these guys they came up through the officer ranks together. They fought in the Mexican-American War together. They were super good friends. And then one goes north and one goes south, and they don't see each other for years and years. And now they're like just a couple miles apart. Right. And it was probably, I mean, it probably entered both of their minds like, hey, I could probably just go over there. Right. I could probably just go say hello. Like, maybe I could risk it. Maybe I could, you know, just sneak over to see my, see my old homie. But yeah, so where were we in the battle? Okay, so the Union line has collapsed, and they end up falling back through the town and setting up in the hills. And this is where. We see the command or the, the order given from Robert E. Lee to General Ewell, where he says, take the hill if practicable. Well, that's subjective. Ewell kind of misunderstands. What Robert E. Lee is saying is, take the fucking hill, bro. But Ewell interprets that as, eh, if you want to. <laughs> and he said, ah, I don't know, that's that'd be, that'd probably be really hard. I don't, I don't think that's practicable. And that was the wording of the order. So he doesn't. And that ends up being like one of the biggest mistakes of the entire battle is that Ewell doesn't further pursue the Union up the hill because when they end up withdrawing and going back to fight him the next day, 
they, that gives the Union time to get reinforcements and fortify their positions on top of the hill. So what? So in the film, though, that's that's not the raid on where the main is defending, right? Because we see them try and fail. You're sorry, is that on a different side that they that they just didn't even that's try? On the, that's on a different day. Yeah, that's on. It's on, it's the day before. Oh, still on the first day. Yeah. Oh, do they, do they show that in the film where he kind of just ends up not doing anything? They don't. They don't show Ewell not going up the hill in in the film but they okay. show lee giving the order he tells the, his aide he says tell you to take that hill if practicable gotcha that is in the film but he ends up not doing nothing okay yeah th- then the battle continues and then it we find out later on oh you did not take that hill okay. the union okay. has that hill gotcha so after that first day the confederate army has the town of gettysburg but the union has that high ground in a fishhook shape and this is where we see Longstreet and Lee get into the argument because Longstreet says, hey, we don't have to fight them here. We can just go around. We'll just move around them to the south, start marching towards Washington. They have to come after us because right. we're marching towards their capital. And then we can fight them wherever the hell we want because we'll be out in front of them. We can stop on whatever ground we choose. Right. In- instead of fighting an uphill battle. <laughs> instead of fighting a literal uphill battle where they're just, I mean... As we speak, you know, as he's telling him this, they're getting reinforced. They're entrenching themselves in these elevated positions. And he's like, it's going to be a slaughter if we if we have to fight them here. Well, Lee thought that he had such a big numerical advantage that he doubles down. And he says, you know, like we see in the movie, if Meade's here, I'm going to attack him here. Because Lee's thought is, let's end the war today. Right. We take them on that hill with our numbers the war's over. Right. Right. And they had already they had already fought hard to push them out of the town. And so he said, "How can I just how can I tell my army to retreat and now we're just going to stop and we're just going to mar- go around them? I already right. asked them to to take this town they did, so we're going to fight them here." All oh, right. Otherwise we just took it for nothing. Right. Yeah. So he doubles down and says we're going to try a flanking uh movement and that's where we get to little round top so the initial attack comes on the Union's left flank. And at this time, something that we don't see in the movie, but there was a General Sickles who was kind of in the middle of the, so there's the, of, on the fish hook, there's like the curve part on the north side. And then on the west side, it's basically a straight line. In the middle of that line was a corps under the command of a Union General Sickles. And he said, oh, I'm going to, not hold my defensive position here. I'm out for blood and glory. I'm going to move my line up to this peach orchard that's just to the west and press the attack on the Confederate army, basically take the fight to them, not wait here in my defensive position. Well, when he did that, he left big gaps in their line that had to be reinforced to keep the Confederates from being able to kind of, because imagine that there's the straight part of the of the fish hook. Now there's a bulge going out to the west, mm. uh, and there's openings then on the north side and the south side of his line. So now those have to be reinforced, and that almost cost the Union Army the Battle of Gettysburg right there. But they were able to hold them off, and then at the same time is where you have the flanking movement going around the Union left flank at Little Round Top, where the poorly supplied 20th Maine under the command of Colonel Chamberlain, played by Jeff Daniels, runs out of ammo, and just like in the movie, in real life too, they fix bayonets and charge down the hill 
taking the Confederates by surprise and forcing them back. Uh, and it keeps them from being able to basically get elevated ground on the left flank, which would have allowed them to set up guns there and then just kind of like march along the length of that fish hook and, you know, destroy the Union Army as they went. And kind of makes Chamberlain like this instant hero, like, holy cow, why'd you even think to do that? That was brilliant. You're a stud. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was. You're right. <laughs> and and he was actually there with his brother. His brother was a lieutenant under the command of him. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to all that later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. So uh, then because they had attacked on both flanks, just like we see in the movie, General Lee decides, oh, well, I just attacked him on the flanks yesterday. They're probably weak in the middle. I'm just going to punch right through. And again, Longstreet is like, this is a horrible idea. They have elevated gunnery positions that overlook a mile of open ground. Oh, right, right. We're we're sitting ducks for a mile until we can engage them, right? Right. You want us to just walk a mile over open ground getting shot by cannons the entire way. Then we're going to hit a fence in the middle of this field where we're all going to get bunched up. Meanwhile, we're still getting shot at by cannons. Then, once we get close, they have short-range cannons that are shooting canister shot, which is basically turns a cannon into a giant shotgun. We're going to be facing those and musket fire. Then, once we even get to the Union line, if we ever do, however many people we get there, half of them are going to die from musket fire and getting stabbed by bayonets. Like, this is a, it's a terrible idea. And Lee's at least, at least hopeful that they're going to do their own artillery barrage to kind of soften that line up, which is not a bad thought, other than it basically doesn't work because they don't have the range, or why, why does that not really work? Because they didn't, they didn't have enough guns, they didn't have enough ammo, and like they talk about in the movie, they had moved their wagons with all their ammo and stuff, their resupply train was moved way far back to keep it out of range. Well, it's out of range of the cannons, but that's also, you have to go way further now to resupply okay. and reload your guns. So okay. that's where we get the whole thing of like, okay, they're waiting for the artillery barrage to soften them up. It's not working. It's not working. It's not working. And right. basically he ends up telling Longstreet, hey, look, if you don't go now, we can't support you at all. Like, it's going to be bad if you go now. If you wait, you have no art- artillery cover. Right. And so they, he says, okay. And they end up ordering Pickett's charge where General Pickett leads these guys across a mile of open terrain. And and this is one of those instances where if you were writing this as a screenplay, you would include this. But when Pickett goes up to Longstreet and he says, shall I commence the charge? And Longstreet can't even look him in the eye, can't even verbalize, yes, I order you to charge. He just kind of like looks down at the ground and nods his head. That's real. General Longstreet could not even bring himself to verbally give the order to charge. Pickett asked him, should I charge? And he just nodded his head. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. And, we, and we'll talk about Longstreet and kind of all that here in a little bit then too. Yeah. Um, when we kind of do some character breakdowns. Then, then just to wrap this up, Pickett marches his guys across. Basically, what you see in the movie is exactly what happened. He ends up losing around 70% of his division. So about three out of four of the guys that he takes on this charge are killed. And he has to retreat. While they're retreating, General Lee actually rides out to the retreating soldiers and is personally apologizing to them. Which we see in the film. Right. 
telling them that he's sorry that he asked that much of him. And then they spend the next day waiting for a, a counterattack that never comes. And Lee is devastated and defeated and ends up marching back to Virginia on the 5th. He said of the battle, he said, no blame, and this is a quote from Robert E. Lee, no blame can be attached to the army for its failure to accomplish what is projected by me. I am alone to blame. So Robert E. Lee basically took personal responsibility for his army's failure at, uh, at Gettysburg. When there are some other, other issues, but, but you could argue that, yeah, it, 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 yeah, there's, uh, one is, like you said, Stuart wasn't able to get him the information he was hoping, or he basically was counting on, and right. and two, Longstreet's doubt also may have led Longstreet to make fatal delays, versus if Longstreet had been like, yep, let's go, then maybe they would have increased their odds of, of success. So, even if it was the bad call, you still could have made the best of a bad situation, so... Right. And you and and like General Ewell not taking the high ground on the first day when he maybe right, could have. Right. Yeah. There there were there were other people around Lee that were fucking up, but he didn't put the blame on anyone but himself. Um now was this his first loss uh, at a battle in the war? No, this was not his first loss. Okay. His first battle ever, the Battle of Cheat Mountain, he lost. His second battle, the Battle of 7 Days, was kind of a a toss-up. He won at Manassas. He lost at South Mountain. Okay. Uh, Antietam is, confider- is considered a toss-up. And then he won at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. So he, he was on, uh, in fighting terms, like, uh, you know, in, in like uh, boxing or MMA he was on terms. Winning streak. He was on a two-fight win streak going into this one. Uh, but, <laughs> gotcha. then he, but then he lost, yeah. Right. And, and again, at the sports that you can still be considered a good coach, even if you're kind of losing some games. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's just crazy. To, it's almost... Uh, Seems somehow disrespectful of the dead just to be kind of making all this stuff sports stuff. But yeah, it's uh, yeah. So then, like you're saying, then they basically and they show this in the film, too. They're hoping they've now taken up a defensive position heading into the fourth day, hoping the North will capitalize on its victory and attack them. But the North is just like, basically, no, we good. Yeah. And uh, the, the South has to fall back. They were kind of yeah, they were hoping that the North would kind of overextend their, you know, get get overconfident. But yeah, they they didn't. They were just they just kind of sat on that high ground with all of their cannons and all you know. Basically, their whole army was sitting there like, yeah, you can try again, but like we're not we're not coming after you. You you can leave. You can go back to Virginia. That's fine. And they that's what they did. Okay. And then we we will get to the events of the Civil War post Gettysburg in future episodes. We still have a few more episodes here on the Civil War. But before we leave today, we are still going to break down some of the important people from today. I think I'll start with Longstreet here because we just kind of mentioned him and his disputes with uh, General Lee. So a very interesting guy who does kind of highlight how a lot of these people were were torn. He is a Southern guy from South Carolina, and that is ultimately why he does, you know, like a lot of these guys, resigned uh, in 1861 from the U.S. Army to join the Confederacy because he was South Carolinian. But ideologically, he kind of had a lot more in common with the North. He didn't really like slavery and didn't want to break up the Union. He just, and then even after the war, we kind of see he ingratiates himself pretty quickly with the North, getting some good, good jobs and positions in the Grant administration, you know, being a diplomat to the Ottoman Empire and like a railroad official and stuff. So uh, to the point that a lot of people in the South really hated Longstreet and kind of saw him as, oh, sellout's not the right word, but kind of betrayed them. And then 
that leads to conspiracy theories where a lot of people are basically saying like, oh, he threw the war on purpose because he was a northern sympathizer. And a lot, of, so he was kind of becomes persona non grata in the South. But yeah, he was basically the number two in the pecking order uh, under Lee in the Confederate Army. So in the middle of the war, and actually I didn't write down what year this was, but it was before Gettys- Gettysburg, I, like six months or a year before Gettysburg. Three of his four children died of scarlet fever like the same week. Like all Jeez. four of his all four of his kids got scarlet fever, and the one year old, four year old, and eleven year old all died, and only his thirteen year old son survived. And this obviously devastated Longstreet. And even like they talked about before this tragedy, his camps and you know if if you're you know hanging out between battles, just at their camp as they're traveling around it was considered very lively lively almost like a party atmosphere wherever long street was they're all drinking and mm. playing cards and and doing all that kind of stuff and then we kind of see that in the movie where they're all sitting yeah. around the fire okay. playing cards talking yeah, shit to yeah. the to each other and uh you know talking to the british guy like it does seem like yeah. it's kind of a light a light mood there at their camp but considerably less so after after the tragedy and, and again it, it probably did kind of pick back up there but like he basically stopped drinking, and the, and the all his camps were way more subdued. It kind of makes sense if he's not initiating the party, and all his men know he's just lost three children in like a week. That they're gonna be like, yeah, uh, let's uh, let's keep it quiet, guys. And he kind of yeah. reembraced his faith and and all those kinds of things. But yeah, after the war, well, during and after the war, he was critical of Lee. After the war, very outspokenly critical of Lee. He works with the Republican Party, which again, party of Lincoln. He's friends with Grant that kind of helps him after the war. He even in 1874, again, to talk about one of the many reasons the South doesn't like Longstreet, even though he's a Southern general, 1874, he's leading a group of African-American troops uh, in some little conflict. I I forget the details of. Yeah, he led a black militia against the White League to crush a coup attempt in Louisiana in 1874. Okay, yeah, that's it. That's it. Yep, I didn't write down the details. Uh, and then he he does die in his in his eighties in the early nineteen hundreds. But the the one thing I was going to mention though too is I was watching a video on YouTube that kind of was saying take everything Longstreet said after the fact it with a grain of salt that Longstreet might have been a little bit of a revisionist revisionist history guy and basically being like yeah I mean yes he had these disagreements with Lee they're they're documented but he might have played up to what extent. He's he's kind of doing the Monday morning quarterback thing. Well, uh, you know, yeah. a- after we know what would have worked, he was real big about saying, "Well, that's what I said we should have done." Like, yeah, and yes, it might have been true, but he played that up and maybe maybe made a bigger deal about it than it actually was at the time. Um, right. And then when we're looking at the film, I don't I don't know that these uh, these discussions were as pointed as we see them in the film, or if that's just kind of what's kind of been how the dial's been twisted. To make Longstreet look uh, like he knew better. There's stuff too specifically like in his conversation that he has with Fremantle, the the British officer, where he says stuff like, oh, if it was up to me, like we should have freed the slaves and then fired on Fort Sumter. To give us more the moral high ground. Right. Yeah. Um, is that is that accurate? Was that was that a, well, an actual sentiment or or was he saying that? Did, did he say that like after the war? Like, oh, I was actually against slavery the whole time, and I just it's state states rights or whatever. Like, because he was trying to ingratiate himself with the with the U.S. Then at that point, right? So I, I mean, I would say it's one of those things we can't, we can't know something like that specific. 
but it is fitting with who he was. He was more of a he was more northern minded ideologically, but was from South Carolina. So I I don't know, or it's probably doubtful he specifically said that at that moment. But that is the kind of ideology that it seems like Longstreet held. Yeah, to what extent you know before or after the war, who knows? Mm-hmm. But it's not unrealistic that he would have had that thought for sure. And then uh, Pickett, we uh, we see we saw you know Pickett also briefly in Santa Fe Trail. Uh, they tease him in this film for being last in his class at West Point, which we did mention uh, is accurate. The charge is named for him, but obviously, like it wasn't his call, and there was other generals leading their divisions up up this charge. It's just kind of, I mean, I you might even know better than I. Like, why does it? Why does he get labeled Pickett's charge when there's a bunch of other guys too? Was he first? Was he center? Was he the biggest group, or was he just? I think it's I mean, because he was he was in command of the division that was charging. Well, I thought there was multiple divisions charging with multiple generals, but he was like the main one. It was one one division made up of multiple like brigades. So is it, okay. there's a, a different hierarchy. So like the I gotcha. He is ultimately in command of the charge. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. 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 So the charge is being led by. There are multiple generals there, but the one who is in charge of all of those generals is Pickett. Right. Yeah. Who is directly under Longstreet, who is directly under Lee. And I think that's what confused me, because he's following orders to make the charge, but once that order has been given, he is in charge of the charge. Correct. Hence Pickett's charge. Okay. Okay. Because Yeah, because it was ordered by Longstreet and Lee, I think that kind of threw me off. That makes sense, though. Basically... Someone else gave him the mission, but then it's his mission to be in charge of once said mission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's not it's not named after him because it was his idea. It's named after him because out of everyone there that was charging, he was the highest ranking one. That makes sense. Okay. Okay. Yep. 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 Because Longstreet stays behind doing his own stuff with his men, and yeah, right. Yeah, okay. And yeah, so the the vibe we get from Pickett in the film is accurate. He was a very popular and charismatic guy, and like he, you can just kind of see he's like a. He's the one kind of itching for a fight, but not recklessly slow. So he's just kind of this popular, rambunctious guy, and that and that's who he was. He he was Henri. He was the kind of guy that would play pranks on classmates at West Point, and just that's who he was. Um, he was a native of Virginia, uh, who was actually stationed at the San Juan Islands off the coast of Washington State when the war started. Huh. So when he, he gets word, he obviously has the same plans as everyone else. He's going to resign and join the Confederacy. But he has to take a a boat from Washington, again, Washington State. So he's on the West right. Coast, Pacific Northwest, sails down to Panama, walks slash rides slash however he gets across Panama to the Atlantic side, where he gets on another ship that takes him from Panama up to Virginia. So that's how Pickett started the Civil War. Huh. So seven months after Gettysburg, uh, he was in charge at the Battle of New Bern in North Carolina. The South lost, but uh, was able to capture some Union soldiers. And so the Battle of North Carolina, they capture Union soldiers who are also from North Carolina, a southern state. So... Pickett decides, and I'm sure there are other people around him are kind of on board with the idea, oh, you're North Carolina boys fighting for the Union? You're essentially deserters because you should be fighting for the South. So he has them executed as deserters. Jeez. Uh, and one of them even included a, a 15-year-old boy. And this haunted Pickett 
I mean, his career anyway. I don't know how personal he, he felt about it. But like after the war, when the South loses, he even like flees to Canada temporarily because he's worried he's going to be prosecuted for this. Hmm. And uh, there is like an investigation and everything. Ultimately, he nothing really comes of it. He is also because he's friends with all these guys from their pre-war days. Uh, he's able to kind of make it go away, I guess. But yeah, that's definitely this. He's most known for Pickett's Charge, but he's second most known for these executions of Northern troops that they were saying were Southern deserters. That's kind of all about all I had on on Pickett there. I guess I should say he. Uh, he died when he was uh, 50. I think he actually had like alcohol issues and stuff like that. And so uh, a liver abs- abscess is listed as his cause of death. So possibly alcohol related, possibly a bacterial infection. Uh, but yeah, he died in 1875 when he was 50 years old. And then let's uh, kick it over to you for Lee now, right? So Robert E. Lee, who we see was the commander of the Confederate Army here. Although, and I didn't actually know this, he was not the commander or the general in chief of the confederate army until 1865 wait what who's in charge well it was just each general was in charge of their own army and then in 1865 everyone that that all that command gets consolidated under him so there was no supreme confederate commander until it was him in 1865 correct yeah whereas the north had grant in charge the whole time or was the grant separate from the potomac army you were saying no so grant was Grant was also made general-in-chief later on. Okay, okay. So it was more just common at the time. It wasn't, yeah, okay. Yeah, so he was uh, he was the, the main general that we see on the Confederate side, played by Martin Sheen. He was born in January 1807 in Virginia. His father was Henry Lee, Henry Lighthorse Lee, who we talked about a couple times. Uh, was a friend of George Washington's, a Revolutionary War veteran. Spoke at his funeral, right. Right, but he was actually absent for Robert E. Lee's life. Like, he had all these debts and uh, ended up leaving and going to, like, the Caribbean or something. Like, he he left uh, Robert E. Lee and Robert E. Lee's mom in Virginia, and so he was raised by his mom for for his childhood. He graduated from West Point in 1829 and was commissioned in the Corps of Engineers. At first, he was not, like, a CAV guy or an infantry guy he was an engineer lieutenant uh he served in the mexican-american war and received three brevet promotions for courage which basically what that means is it's a in the days before they had a lot of like different military decorations for valor like you know they had like the medal of honor but short of that there weren't like different like you know achievement medals or commendation medals or or whatever so in those days, you would just get what's called a brevet promotion. So instead of getting a regular promotion to captain, you would be a brevet captain, and people would know, like, oh, you're not necessarily higher ranking than other captains, but whatever you did to get that promotion was courageous or, you know, some sort of special circumstance, not just getting a promotion. Gotcha. Um, so he got, and he got three of those during the uh, Mexican American War, all the way up to Colonel. After the Mexican-American War, he held a few different peacetime positions in the Army, including the superintendent of West Point, where we saw him in Santa Fe Trail. He was the superintendent there. He was also the commander of the Marines that captured John Brown at Harper's Ferry, which we also talked about at uh, at Santa Fe Trail. At the kind of outset of the war, 
uh, at the very beginning of all this, you know, the secession talk and everything, uh, General Winfield Scott, who was in charge of the U.S. Army at the time, urged Abraham Lincoln to make Robert E. Lee kind of the general in chief of the U.S. Army because he knew that he was such a talented, a talented leader, a talent would make a talented general. Right. Lee didn't or Lincoln didn't ultimately do that, but it was like he was on Abraham Lincoln's radar before he ever was a general um, for the Confederacy. Lee was actually it, it wasn't it wasn't like a lot of these guys where it was kind of a oh okay once the split happens like I'm I'm going north I'm going south even if I'm torn I'm going to go one way or the other like they kind of knew what they were going to do. Lee was so torn between being a Virginian and his what he felt was his duty as an American citizen that he was going to remain neutral. He was not going to he was just going to resign from the army and just be neutral for the for the conflict. Oh huh. But his loyalty to Virginia eventually won out and he did end up after resigning and initially wanting to be neutral he ended up getting a, a commission as a general in the in the Confederate army. Um there's actually a quote here when he first decided that he was going to resign from the US army. He said with all my devotion to the union and the feeling of loyalty and duty of an American citizen I have not been able to make up my mind to raise my hand against my relatives, my children, my home. I have therefore resigned my commission in the army, except in the defense of my native state, I hope to never draw my sword again. And then it was hmm. just shortly after that that he ended up, like he said, in the defense of his native state, Virginia, coming back into the military. So he left his mansion uh, in Arlington in 1861, shortly before it was captured by Union troops. That is the big mansion that is at Arlington National Cemetery, that is the mansion of Robert E. Lee. Huh. And it actually, it became a cemetery after the war, kind of as a, not necessarily a snub, but just kind of to deny Robert E. Lee having his mansion back. I thought I'd heard that before. Yeah, okay. They basically confiscated, they said, oh, all those years you've been in the Confederacy, you haven't been paying taxes. In order to make up for that, we're going to confiscate your mansion and we're going to turn it into a cemetery and we're going to put the graves right up next to it so that no one will ever live there. Wow. Huh. Was it initially Union soldiers or Confederate soldiers or is it more just like people who died after the Civil War? Uh, well, it's it's any uh, it's all all it's services both. today. Right. But I think it was initially Union soldiers. I'm not sure if there's any Confederates buried there or not. Surely there must be. Okay. Actually, I mean, I've visited, I visited it, and I just can't remember the details. Yeah, me, I mean, me I've too. I've, through it. Yeah. I've been there multiple times, and I just, I, I don't know if there are any Confederate soldiers buried there or not. Yeah, they basically confiscated it from them and for taxes. Well, that was that was the reason. They, they wanted to confiscate it from them anyway, but their reason was right. to to repay all the taxes that he owed uh, that he didn't pay for the for the five years of fighting. So he spent the first part of the war overseeing defensive fortifications so doing more of his you know what he was originally trying to do his engineer stuff so he got the nickname the king of spades because of uh he was overseeing all these uh like wall building and hmm. you know shoreline defenses in the carolinas he first got command of the army of virginia in june of 1862 and it was him who renamed it the army of northern virginia because he wanted it to be made known that like we're going to get richmond back and they did because richmond was kind of initially it, the confederates were kind of run out of there but then they ended up taking it back 
but that's why he named his army the Army of Northern Virginia because he wanted it to specifically evoke his home in Arlington and 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 Richmond. Oh, huh. Let's see. Okay, so he fought. Well, well I I kind of went over the battles and stuff that he was engaged in, like Antietam and battles in Richmond. So he over the first couple years of the war, he was engaged in several battles. He's in, uh, at Gettysburg in 1863, where he's defeated. After Gettysburg, he was physically and mentally just completely exhausted. There's actually some historical evidence, I guess, that he maybe suffered a heart attack right before the Battle of Gettysburg. So he tried to retire, like he tried to resign from the army, but Jefferson Davis refused to accept his resignation. Hmm. And he just had had to continue the fight. Ulysses S. Grant was made general in chief in 1864 and began to trade blows with Grant's army in Virginia, um, which we'll go into more detail in 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 these next couple uh, Civil War episodes. Lee himself became the general-in-chief of the Confederate Confederate Army in February of 1865, and he actually wanted to start freeing slaves, not because of, like, any, you know, moral issue with slavery, necessarily, but because he wanted to start, he wanted to use them to bolster the Confederate numbers because they were taking such heavy losses. And they were actually freeing and training slaves to fight for the Confederacy at the time that the war ended. Huh. He was eventually uh, surrounded and surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse in April of 1865. Again, we'll talk about that in more detail in one of our next couple Civil War episodes. And after his surrender, he actually rejected proposals from junior officers who wanted to turn the war into a guerrilla fight, basically like disappear into you know, like Appalachia and start fighting a guerrilla war against the Union. He was like, no, we're not doing that. We need to reunify. We need to reconcile and we need to become one country again. And so it was his influence that kind of kept the civil war from turning into an even longer, more protracted guerrilla war in the mountains. Right. And you got you guys to respect him for that, because in the absence of that leadership, is it one of those things for just decades after it's almost like a Spanish Civil War kind of thing, where it's right. just all these the, the, you know, or, or the what we saw in Battle of Algiers, where they're just kind of constantly causing trouble and refusing to reintegrate into one country. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it could have been it could have been a lot worse. And that's why he gets like stuff like that is why he was so respected by guys like Grant and even Lincoln was quoted as saying that Robert E. Lee was a good man. Like, they were fighting against him, but they kind of had this respect for him, even though he was their enemy. And even though, ultimately, the Civil War is over the issue of slavery, it's easy to forget that many people fighting for the South didn't necessarily care one way or the other about slavery, or maybe even been anti-slavery, but they were choosing their home and their family over the issue and that's that's a tough spot to put someone in yeah and we we see that i mean there's there are uh multiple times in the movie where they talk about their kind of their mentality of how they feel now again like you said it's when they talk about states rights a state's right to do what own slaves but in their mind it was like the one guy says oh well we fought a war of independence against a tyrannical king in London, 
we are now fighting a war of independence against who we consider to be a tyrannical president in Washington. Or when Pickett talks about, it's like if we had a club and yeah. we're doing what we like in the club and all of, a, all of a sudden the club president starts telling us what we can do in our own house. And we say, oh, well, we don't want to be in this club anymore. And the club president says, well, you don't have the right to leave the club. You have to be in the club forever. And their thing is, well, we don't want to be in the club anymore. Right. And it's, it's, it's an interesting analogy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or the, uh, the, the captured soldiers where uh, Lieutenant Thomas Chamberlain is asking them what they're, you know, they, well, they ask him, what are, you, what are you fighting for? And he says, well, to free the slaves, of course, and to reunify the Union. Uh, what are you fighting for? And the one guy says, well, I'm not fighting, well, he uses a racial slur, but he says, I'm not fighting, fighting for black people one way or the other. He said, I'm, he said, I'm fighting for my rats. He says, you're what? Yeah. My rats. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, uh, yeah, for in the eyes of like most of the Confederates, it was about a, you know, the, the loyalty to their state over the loyalty to their country. And Lee was no different. After the war, he was the president of Washington College in Lexington, Virginia, and spent the next few years focusing on education. He wrote his memoirs there, stated that he had no regrets, and that if he had to do it all over again, he would have done it the same way as far as, you know, leaving, Which side leaving to join, the Union right? Army, yep, fighting for the Confederacy, all that. And he died not long after the Civil War. He died in um, October of 1870. Uh, in late September, he had a stroke and contracted pneumonia and died uh, a couple weeks later, and his funeral uh, was apparently attended by thousands of people from both the North and the South uh, who came to pay their respects to to Robert E. Lee. Right. Again, it's just it's hard to recognize today how respected this man was by the entire nation, not just the South. Right. Exactly. Yeah. After reading about him and kind of his history and how how much he was respected by the entire country, to me, I even if I don't necessarily agree with it, I understand why there is so much stuff named after him. Yes, yes. Like, I understand why there are so many, like, Robert E. Lee elementary schools or, or you know, Robert E. Lee Avenue or whatever in, in towns right. all across America, uh, mostly in the South, but all across America. The level of respect was so high that, like, that's why that, that legacy continued on later. Yes, absolutely. I did real quick want to talk about his own personal views on race and slavery. It seems like he's kind of a Thomas Jefferson-like character where he is kind of like a human contradiction when it comes to stuff like that. Like he would say, you know, things about how he felt sorry for the ways that blacks were treated in America, but at the same time was a believer in the fact that the white race was superior to the black race. He thought that slavery was not necessarily a good institution, but he was also one of those, it's not a good institution, but the black people are better off here than they would have been otherwise. Ugh. He did himself own slaves, obviously. Um, he grew up, or he was born on a plantation. He owned, he was a slave, a slave owner. But it said that he believed that the enslaved should be a bit, this is from the his Wikipedia page. He believed the enslaved should be eventually freed in a general way, only at some unspecified future date as a part of God's purpose. 
Right. And we've talked about that kind of thing before, where a lot of these people just kind of thought it would happen at some day, but wanted it to happen naturally or organically. But I mean, if we're being real, it's like, it, how is that ever going to happen economically? Right. So it's, it's it, he would say like, oh, I'm disgusted by slavery. I don't like the institution. But any time that then abolitionists would say, okay, well, then let's do away with the institution and free all the slaves. He would say, whoa, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. That's too radical. That's too rash. Like, the, we already have the slaves. Like, you know, it's, we, we can't just abolish slavery. So it's, it's still, it's, his views are still antiquated and bad and wrong. But it's a lot more complicated than just, I like slavery. Slavery is the best. Sla- slavery is good. You know, we should expand slavery all the time and right and i you know i don't like black people i just want to have them all as slaves that's it's not he's not a a a cartoon villain right and even at the time we talked about before in, in the 19th century like public sentiment was heavily turning that way and even in the south i think they acknowledged yeah this isn't gonna last forever but it's almost like they wanted to peel the band-aid off slowly and the civil war was ripping it off all at once kind of and it was it was like a it was like the Band-Aid was slowly getting pulled off, or rather they were they were saying, well, we'll eventually take this Band-Aid off, but you, the North, are coming down here trying to rip it off all at once, and I think that that's right. you overstepping your, that's you trampling on my rights to have a Band-Aid on my arm if I want to, regardless of right. whether or not it's, you know, turning black and slowly peeling away at the edges. I don't want you to just rip it off. If it is going to get pulled off, I'm going to be the one to do it, and I'm going to do it in my own way, in my own time. That's kind of how it was. Yeah. I can't, I can't decide if this is a really good or really bad metaphor, but I kind of like it. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm trying to think what that even would have looked like. like. What would it have looked like to get rid of slavery slower? Do you get basically something, say, after... You know, you make a, you pass a law in 1865 that says anybody born after 1871 will be born free, and you just kind of phase it out over a generation. Like I don't know, it, maybe something yeah, like that could have could have caught on, but then you still need economic incentives for them to actually buy into that, and it, it's it's tricky. At some point, it was it was the ending was always going to be messy. I guess is what it comes down to. Yeah, I I don't know either, and it's like there there might have been some. At at the time, let, let me let me qualify this by saying at the time for them, there might have been some, you know, utility in that argument. But after the country's almost a hundred years old and you're arguing over the over it the whole time, something's gotta give eventually. Like right, you can't right. just say, Oh, eventually we'll get rid of slavery, and then a hundred years later you still have it. Like, okay, at that <laughs> point it's like well then what are we even doing? What are we even talking about? Right. Something else right. too that that I want to mention you know, we're we're talking about how morally reprehensible slavery is, and it is, but don't get it twisted. The people in the North that were against slavery, for them, it was more of an economic issue than it was a moral issue, at least at first. Right. And again, it's no nothing nothing is a monolith. Nothing is a monolith. There's people exactly. that, that were exactly. morally opposed to it, and there's people who were just kinda like, Oh, about the economics of it. Right. Yeah. People saying like, Oh, well, how can my you know, how can my farm in Kansas, which is a free state, how can my farm hope to compete with a farm in Arkansas mm. that gets to use slave labor? Right. Like, right. it's not it's not fair economically. Their prices are going to be lower than mine, and I can't sell to the market now. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, it wasn't... And when you ask that person, oh, you know, do, do you want to have, like, black people move into your town? They're like, absolutely not. 
No, I'm, I'm still right. Don't get me right. You know, don't get a twist. I, I'm still racist. I just don't like slavery. Like that's that was a, <laughs> exactly. the sentiment of a lot of these people. Uh, you better not cut that quote out and do anything bad with it. If I ever try to run for office or something, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> no promises. <laughs> um, and then uh, yeah, we're, we're definitely going long here. But uh, I want to real quick talk about the Chamberlain brothers, Lawrence Chamberlain. They call him in the film. It's one, honestly, it's kind of like me where I go by my middle name. That seems to be what Chamberlain was. It's Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Or then I saw maybe he even switched that. So Wikipedia calls him Joshua, but they call him in the film Lawrence. And I'm going to trust that that's more accurate. That's the one played by Jeff Daniels, who, again, I thought was the MVP of the film here. You've never seen so much emotion successfully conveyed in someone with one of those big handlebar mustaches. <laughs> they kind of look silly, but then the, the, that, that pathos, that emotion or whatever is still there. It, it's awesome. So like we, they talk about in the movie, he was a college professor from Maine uh, who volunteered to join the Union. Also, like they show in the film, he had only recently gained command of this regiment. And again, basically, Little Round Top, that all played out just like we see in the film. My only guess is, obviously, like you said, the movie feels like it's in real time. Inevitably, it just isn't. So like, in, in, in the film, I'm guessing the Battle of Round Top is probably, what, 45 minutes of screen time? Well, that would have been right. like, you know, half a day. So even though it yeah. seems incessant, real life, I mean, I've never been in a battle, but, you know, it, things always happen a little little slower, although a lot of battles are just kind of, you know, quick hitters there. But with these successive waves and reloading and repositioning troops, this would definitely have been hours and hours uh, in real yeah. life. Oh, here's one little difference. This might be the only inaccuracy I've found in the whole movie, uh, outside oh, no. of the dialogue stuff. Okay. So when they're doing the the charge downhill, the bayonet charge, we see a Confederate officer take basically point blank aim at Chamberlain and his gun just like dry clicks, like misfires or whatever. Right. In real life, the report is that he the, the gun went off and he just missed. Oh, okay. So <laughs> a very, very small, small little difference. But no, like a lot of the stuff is right. Like they even show like he got hit in the in the sword scabbard and it like bruised his thigh, which in the in the film he goes down. And it looks like at first he's not even hurt at all, but we see him in the film limping the next day. But he, yeah. had, he had this massive thigh bruise because he had gotten shot in the scabbard. So that happened. Uh, so he did get the Medal of Honor for his role in Little Round Top that we've talked about. And this was, like, again, I probably saw this movie 20 years ago. And the only thing I remembered was, oh, yeah, Jeff Daniels was cool and leaves this big swinging gate thing. That's literally all I remembered <laughs> from the four hours of the movie. And it was still, but again, it kind of makes sense because I mean, watching it again, it's kind of my favorite part and it just really stands out. So yeah, he was, he was promoted and the following spring was injured at the Battle of Petersburg in Virginia. And it was actually a wound that the doctors on, you know, on the field thought it was a, a fatal wound. So he's shot in like the right hip slash groin area and the shot like, pierces his bladder and goes like out his left hip like how do you survive that jeez but he did that i mean that's during the civil war and he doesn't die until 1914 uh, but it, it kind of messed him up uh obviously for a while no kidding uh, but that, <laughs> yeah and that yeah to say the least yeah with you think about 1860s technology medical technology but uh and that oh and then what's crazy too is to keep his men from fleeing is like because you so much is on these commanders and the commander falls down. If a battle's kind of like on the fence and your commander goes down, it's very easy for the troops to then just, just retreat. Let's, right. we're not sure what's going on. Our leader just went down. 
let's get out of here. We can always regroup later. Right. So after he's hit in the way I just said, he like basically uses his sword to stay on his feet and like making sure the guys keep fighting. Oh like, my gosh. Just un- unreal. Just an absolute badass. Right. That gets him promoted to general. So we also get a clue that what we see personality wise from him, because he's, he almost seems like, oh, I hate to even say a pushover, but like when he gets that, and actually I didn't see if this was true or not, but I'm guessing it must be some level of accurate because everything in this movie slash book is so accurate. He's given this group of deserters from Maine because they're from Maine too. And Mm -hmm. and he's basically told if they don't want to go with you, you can shoot them. Right. As deserters. Like, we're, we're putting you in command, or basically, we're giving you custody of these prisoners uh, that were Union deserters. And uh, he basically just tells them first thing, he's like, well, they give me permission to shoot you, but you all know that ain't happening. And basically convinces them to rejoin, because they've basically just been fighting too many battles and all that. But anyway, we see something in the historical record that does kind of highlight this might have been who he was, as far as just very... Calm, cool, collected. Again, it kind of makes sense. He's a college professor. I think he even said in the film he's like English. He's like an English professor. He said he t- he taught rhetoric. Okay, yeah, and yeah. some kind of religion religion class. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So at the at the surrender at Appomattox, again, we'll we'll detail this all more later. So Chamberlain was in charge of basically accepting or overseeing as as these Confederate troops are marching in through town you know basically have are, they're surrendering he's the union commander in charge overseeing the parade of confederates surrendering if that kind of makes sense okay so what was considered a controversial call at the time and got him a lot of flack in the north but i think fits the character of the guy we see in the film is he told all of his men the union soldiers standing on either side of the road to basically stand at attention like you're honoring the people marching in through the streets. Huh, okay. So they give these surrendering Confederate soldiers, again, not a salute isn't the right word. You might know the better way to, to what I would call it. But yeah, basically standing at attention with respect to your right. surrendering enemy. Basically the equivalent sure. of good game, good game, good game, good game. And yeah. uh, so I think that was the right call. And he defended it afterwards when the people in the North were criticizing him for it. He stood by it to his death. Like, no, that was the right call. And I'm kind of right. even getting chills just kind of like thinking about that and right now. Especially I mean, in any war, you know, that I, I, I don't think that's a bad call. But especially in this one where it's like these people, like we're, we're, try, we're fighting a war to tell these people they're not our enemy kind of thing. Like, yeah, that we're, we're, we live in the same country. We're, we're exactly. on the same team. Yeah, like right. look at look at our flag, the American flag. It has thirty five stars on it. Yeah, those some of those stars. That one of them's Texas, one of them's South Carolina, one of them's Georgia. Like right, right. These are Americans too. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so mad mad props to him there. And then after the war, this guy is elected governor of Maine, hmm. and uh, and then later served as the president of Bowden College that they they mention in the film. This is where he's hmm. at. And then, yeah, when he died at age 85 in 1914, which is crazy, he's 85, he just died of old age, it's 1914. But they were saying that, like, that wound I mentioned from the, when he got shot through the hip, the complications of that old wound are considered to have contributed to his death. Jeez. So it is just kind of something that just never, yeah, I, I, mean, I can't even imagine. Was this guy pissing blood for 40 years? <laughs> like, I don't even understand. I mean, maybe. 
Uh, maybe if he never gets shot, maybe he lives to be 150. This dude sounds just super <laughs> yeah. hard. Yeah. <laughs> And and then briefly, his brother, uh, Thomas Chamberlain, who we can see in the, in the film, you mentioned was with him at the Battle of Little Round Top. Definitely less uh, less uh, prestigious than his brother, unfortunately. So Thomas was the youngest of the five Chamberlain children. Uh, he was just 22 years old at the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, unlike Lawrence, after the war, Thomas just kind of bounced around from job to job and never really got it figured out. He was an alcoholic. and died at 55 after dealing with heart and lung disease. So kind of the antithesis of his brother, I guess, unfortunately, in a lot of ways. Okay. Uh, yeah, and then we mentioned, you know, Lucy says Grant was not at this battle, was not at Gettysburg. You think of the Civil War and the Union, you think of Grant. Why was Grant not at Gettysburg? Like you said, he was out dealing with all the stuff in the South that we'll get to uh, in the future here. Two other little notes. Uh, they do mention one of the conversations the soldiers are kind of having in their downtime. They're talking about Darwin and one of the guys just kind of like, thinking it's absolutely laughable to think that man is descended from ape or whatever. Um, but the idea that they would be talking about this feels accurate to me because Darwin's on the origin of species was published in 1859. So just a, you know, four years earlier. So it would have been something very much still in the cultural zeitgeist at the time. Yeah. And, uh, Charles Darwin and Abraham Lincoln have the same birthday. Oh, like like same year, even too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh no, I don't know. I, I don't think oh, year, but, okay. uh, they're both born on February 12th. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that's less cool than if it's the same day. day or same, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, so the last thing I wanted to address before we kick to next time here, and I just, I have, I have the question bolded on my notes here, and I watched a YouTube video about it. Where was Jeb Stewart? So Jeb Stewart was the lead in Santa Fe Trail. He was out in Kansas dealing with the bloody Kansas stuff before the Civil War, uh, before he joined the South. We talked about him a little bit before. And in the film, when he shows up and Lee is pissed and kind of dresses him down. And in the film, he never really gets a chance to defend himself. So I'm going to defend him a little bit here and kind of talk about where Jeb Stewart was for this kind of week he was missing in action. So we talked about before how his whole thing was with the, the Southern Cavalry and doing these screening movements to kind of help report to Lee exactly when and where he needed to strike. Uh, what I didn't mention is the extent to which that was also very much a defensive thing as well, that you could use it offensively or defensively. So he was able to, through these screening movements, could almost hide Lee's movements from the Union. By It's almost like, you know, he's kind of moving back and forth and kind of like getting in their way. Like, oh, you can't, you can't see what's going on behind me. Like, he was basically doing that on a large scale with cavalry so the North wouldn't know what Lee was up to. So when your job is essentially to move around and read and react, like at some point you, you can't be everywhere and there's this logistics of moving. So like as things the week heading into Gettysburg are evolving and he's doing all these this kind of stick and move with the cavalry, well, he ends up south of a Union army heading north. And so he's kind of, almost just kind of not because he made a mistake necessarily, is just kind of in a bad position. So he does then start racing up. And again, this is you know, over the course of days. He is racing up toward Pennsylvania, uh, moves past the Union line. So the Union forces are all to the west of him as he's going up the east side of them up to Pennsylvania. And he's still kind of, you know, he's always trying to get word and see what's going on. And even along the way, he's kind of like, uh, like we saw in the general. He's cutting telegraph lines and tearing up railroad tracks to kind of disrupt Union stuff he's doing there. He ends up, and I guess this is where you could say he made a mistake or had bad information. 
he overshoots it and goes way far to north. So I mentioned he started this you know, a few days out of Gettysburg. He's south of the Union. Well, by the time the Battle of Gettysburg starts, Stuart's now a day north of Gettysburg, and it basically overshot everything because that's where he had heard Lee was. Oh, okay. And so he's like, oh, he's like, oh. And so now he's got to go all the way back south, and he gets there as we see in the movie on the second day. So yeah. And again, I wish he had in the film had a chance to defend himself. And Lee basically says, "Hey, I still completely trust you. You're still the guy. You're the you're like the best at what you do. But man, you dropped the ball here. Yeah, you really stepped in at this time." <laughs> right, right. And and yeah, and again, maybe he did, but like he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. Like he was looking for Lee the whole time, got some bad intel, and but yeah, by the time he yeah. does get to Gettysburg, he basically doesn't have anything to say. Like I don't know what yeah. So he was doing his job, tried his best, but uh yeah, by the time he gets to Gettysburg, he does have some supplies to help him with, but he doesn't have any intel to give him. That's what Jeb Stewart was up to. Uh and we mentioned last or a month ago that he ends up uh, dying uh, in a later battle before the war is out. So I did a real quick search. Abraham Lincoln and Charles Darwin were born on the same day in 1809. Okay, well, that makes more sense because it's almost like not news if they just share a birthday, I feel like. Well, I only knew I only knew it that they shared a birthday. I didn't know that it was the same year until right now oh, looking it up. okay. I thought Charles Darwin must have been so much older than Lincoln because, but I, it's just a, it's he like a- longer. Well, yeah, well, and I see the pictures of, like, Darwin looking super old, but he just had, like, he was just balding with gray hair, so he just looks older, even pictures of him taken at the same time of as pictures of Lincoln. So I, I just assumed he was so much older, but no, they are the exact same age down to the day. Right, it, it, it's almost like uh, how Anne Frank and Martin Luther King Jr. are the same age, and there's actually, like, someone, like, still alive today, who is, like, the third person that's, like, but you, you're, they're famous at different ages, and so you don't think of them as being the same age? yeah. Uh, Marilyn Monroe and Queen Elizabeth are like this. They would have been the same age. There or they, you go. they were yeah, the same, yeah, yeah. I, not the same birthday or anything, but the same age. No, right. Yeah. He told us about when, when, when they are known. I had uh, a couple of other. We're going really long here. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I know. Yeah. I know. About, about the movie itself. About the movie itself. <laughs> okay. Uh, you mentioned the reenactors. Um, that was one of the reasons why the movie was able to uh, have this big of a scale. They were actually able to save a lot of money on costuming because all of the reenactors brought their own uniforms their and their own guns and some of them even brought their own cannons so like they had all of this equipment and none of them asked to be paid they only they only were paid for travel and food but none of them were like yeah you need to like pay me a salary they just they wanted so badly to make the movie so authentic that they showed up and brought all their own stuff and basically donated their time and all of this expertise. And so in addition to bringing all of their, you know, all their equipment, they also brought all this knowledge uh, that just allowed them to make such an accurate movie in terms of, you know, the the equipment and the uniforms. There's there's like no inaccuracies in the whole movie. Um and even like they get tiny little details right, like uh that little the little red iron cross badge that Thomas Chamberlain is wearing is the little insignia for the first division of the fifth corps that would have been would have been worn by the 20th maine hmm. at that place on their uniform it's a little red you know i don't right. know whatever made out of ceramic or little metal red uh iron cross looking badge like just tiny little stuff like that also this movie while it did not get any oscar nominations it was nominated 
uh, or it won, I guess, a stinker award in 1993 for the worst fake beards. <laughs> okay, yeah, they're pretty bad. <laughs> Long Longstreet especially looks like he's just like has like a nest on his face. Yeah, his his mustache is real, but his the beard itself is is horrible. It's so bad. Well, I'm also like, how's it so clean? Like, how's your beard so clean, dude? <laughs> yeah, there's there's some pretty uh, some pretty rough fake beards. Um, and then uh, finally, one of the uh, reasons that this movie was able to get made i guess ronald maxwell the director was trying to get it made for like 15 years and one of the reasons that it was able to get enough money was because the owner of the film's production company turner pictures the owner is ted turner he is a big time civil war history buff and he actually uh, makes an uncredited cameo in the movie he's one of the confederate soldiers that gets shot during Pickett's charge. Oh, huh, that's cool. Yeah, I, I, I didn't realize that. I, I did see that he was the, the money, some of the money behind it, but I didn't realize he, was, he made a cameo. But no, I, I, it is a good movie. I, I, the, the four hours is intimidating, and it's not for everyone. But if you, in, uh, if you are interested in the Battle of Gettysburg, it's kind of a must see. We've both been to the battlefield uh, visiting. I, I don't really remember the specifics of walking around. I almost wish I had. Uh, Rewatched the movie like right before I had gone to uh, visit Gettysburg. Oh, the one other thing I don't think I mentioned at the beginning. The other quote inaccuracy I will say, or a, my a, a minor beef with the film is the PG thirteen rating makes the violence unrealistic, or the or sorry, the lack of blood and gore is arguably unrealistic. Right there, there's yeah. there, there's a lot of. <laughs> There's a lot of guys that are going down, and there's not a speck of blood uh, to be seen on them, and, or cannon shots that are not doing a lot of damage. For being a movie from 1993, there is a lot of uh, what I associate with like old West movies of guys just going like, oh, and like they <laughs> grab their side or they grab their chest, and they just kind of fall over, and there's no visible wound, there's no blood, there's right. you no... Know, right. Yeah. But that might all... I mean... That's another money-saving thing, though. True. That, no squibs. <laughs> it would have had to have been done with practical effects at the time, and that's expensive. So... Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we are far from done from the Civil War. Uh, this may end up being our longest episode ever, so either you're welcome or sorry, depending on how much time you enjoy spending with us. Well, this is by far the longest movie we've oh, watched, that's so that's, it's only that's fitting. Fair, that's fair. But yes, we will continue next time looking at African-American soldiers during the Civil War with the 1989 film Glory. Glory.